All right. We are in uh, Genesis chapter 24. And uh, in spite of all your best efforts last week to get me sidetracked and to keep me from finishing my lesson last week, I got it pretty much done. So. Uh, <laughs> Ronnie wins hands down. I did. I did Revelation in two years. How long's he been going? And he's not even halfway through it yet. Yeah, I know he does. He takes breaks. So. so. Yeah. If you want the if you want the condensed version of Revelation, I can get you my CDs. <laughs> it only took me two years, so. But but we are in Genesis 24, and we're looking at this story, the account of of uh, Abraham's uh, efforts to secure a, a wife for his son Isaac through his servant, and. Uh, we are well into that story. We're about uh, oh, halfway or so through the chapter. We got down roughly through about verse uh, uh, 27, 28 or so last week. And uh, we'll pick it up there in, in verse 29 today. But uh, before we read today's passage, and we have a sizable section to read, but a lot of it you're familiar with because a lot of it is repetition uh, of things that we've already uh, discussed. But uh, before we get into that and read that section today, what do you recall of the things that we learned last week? I that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Most people live their entire lives and never know that that's available. <laughs> In fact, we're going to see today the, the process, what happens when somebody discovers that for the first time in their life. We're going to see that with Rebecca. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And unfortunately, I think we become so accustomed to it as believers, sometimes we take it for granted. What a stunning, miraculous, marvelous thing it is to have God leading your lives and involved in your life on an intimate level. But what else? Okay. 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 We, we see examples in Scripture where it's done, where signs are asked for and and the Lord doesn't seem to, in many cases, doesn't reprimand them. In some cases, he does. And so it has more to do with the circumstances involved and the, and the heart of the people involved uh, uh, as to whether or not it might be appropriate. What are, what are some of the things to be considered when somebody thinks about asking God for a sign? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
What's the difference between manipulating God or trying to make a formulaic thought versus No, it does matter, Jim. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't to you, but it does to everybody else. It's a sign, and then you said, oh, I started to say from God that that would have really been, you know, you know, bang, you know, yeah. to involve yeah. God and to be presumptuous. Anyway, so we got off on talking about the sign. You know, it's a sign. How many times do your people say that? Yeah. You know, this thing happened, oh, that's a sign. And they mostly say it flippantly, perhaps, or they, you know, they're not really thinking, or maybe they are thinking. There's some spiritual cosmic magnetism and all this kind of weird thing. So, so we we need to divorce ourselves from all that wrong thinking. I think you have a really good, clear presentation of, of how God opposes that with the right heart yeah. and still operating in faith, just because, you know, okay, God is this. Things is all wet, and I'll just do it. You still have to have faith yeah. to trust that God's leading in that direction, yeah. and evaluate even at that point, just like the, the servant did. Yeah, yeah. Here. Yeah, the sign is not the final answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have to hold things uh, under close examination uh, to uh, God's word and and God's leading and that sort of thing. One thing I didn't get into much last week, though, in this area, though, is. Uh, uh, when we talk about the providence of God, uh, we're talking about how God controls and directs circumstances, oftentimes in unseen ways. So, for example, when we read the book of Esther, we see God's hand all over that whole story. But God is not mentioned once in the entire book. Okay? So, when we read the book of Esther, we see God's providence. We see Him working, and we understand He is working by faith. But really, at no point in the story is God specifically mentioned or to say God did this or God did that. But you just read the story and you see God at work. And I think sometimes in this area of signs, one of the things that we're struggling with is is we're struggling with the area of God's providence. There are many, many things that we talked about last week. They're very clear from God's word, what he intends, what he wants us to do, what he expects of us. And that's how we live our lives, primarily is by the dictate of Scripture and by the instruction of Scripture. But oftentimes we find, sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances that, that Scripture just doesn't seem to address. You know? And at that point, uh, we're, we're really up to depending upon God's providence to direct our steps and to guide our steps, uh, even in unseen ways and, seen, and ways we don't understand. And to some degree, I think that's what uh, the servant confronts here. He confronts a situation where he knows... He, he, he sort of knows what he's looking for, but this really is an area that's beyond him. It's beyond his ability to discern. And so he asks for a sign from God uh, and he stipulates the sign. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But he stipulates the sign 
and and God very graciously complies with him and and uh, and gives him the sign that he's asking for. So. <laughs> It's kind of a hard sign. I don't know the culture. I mean, I don't think it's customary to water a stranger's camels. But trying to put it in a modern day thing is like you drive your car across country and you go in for a convenience store to ask for a drink of water. And if it's your will, Lord, let the lady behind the counter come out and fill my car with gas. Wash the car. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that uh, uh, let me don't let me forget to come back to that because uh, there's something I want to address. But somebody over here says. Um, see more of that again today. It's really it's cool to look at the the analogy that we see here of of uh, of uh, this whole story as analogous of the <coughs> the opportunity and the responsibility and of presenting the gospel to the lost and winning the lost to Christ. So uh, I want to come back to uh, Mike's point though, uh, because we didn't really develop this last week. Uh, we talked a lot about why the servant selected the sign that he, he that he did select and we talked about one of the reasons apparently he selected that sign was so that he could so that he could have some understanding or knowledge of the of the woman that God had appointed he wanted these were these were qualities that he wanted to see in the life of the woman that he was looking for to uh, to be a wife for Isaac okay <clears throat> but even though that is true, and I, and I, and I believe that is true, I think it, it would be uh, a disservice to the passage and, and really somewhat some, to some degree undermine our understanding of the passage if we don't recognize the aspect uh, that Mike brought out, uh, that this really is an unusual thing. He's not asking, you know, he's not asking for something that might typically be done. So even though I believe that 
Rebecca's response when he asked for water, I believe that her response to offer to water her camels is in keeping with her character and is in keeping with her temperament. And we talked about how she appears to be this very this very outgoing, almost if you want to use the term type A personality, and that's reflected in her response. And I think that's very clearly true. I think at the same time, we need to keep in mind that her response is is something that is prodded in her by God. It's not something that even she, even with her even even with her temperament and even with her personality and even with her character would typically do. That is, in fact, why the servant asks for this particular sign, not only so that he could see to some degree the woman's temperament and personality and character, not only that he could see that, but so that he would see something that was so unusual, so outstanding that it would be clear to him that this is the woman that God had appointed. Okay, so it needed to be something sufficiently miraculous, if you will, that he goes, oh, okay, this really is from God. And I know this is from God because this wouldn't happen under the best of circumstances in any situation. Okay, and it becomes clear that that her her decision to do that, to water those ten camels. And remember, we talked about what a what a uh, gigantic task that was that she undertook. And it probably took her an hour or more to all those treks down to the well and filling her her jar with water and bringing it up 250 gallons of water uh, that she had to bring up to water those camels. Uh, I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. But the point is that it is such a it's, it's such an outstanding event, such an unusual response even from Rebecca, that we'll see as we get into next week's lesson, that it it just instantly convinces both Laban and Bethuel, uh, who is uh, Rebecca's father, convinces both her brother and father, this thing is of God. Okay, so we want to keep both those things in mind. It is a reflection of the kind of a woman that she was, but it is also uh, a, 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 a a response on her part that I think probably when she stopped and she looked back on it, even she went, wow, I did that. <laughs> she might have been thinking that at about a gallon, 150 <laughs> going, why did I do this? You know, but uh, so. So anyway, I think it's a reflection of both those things. And I think that's important to keep in mind. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would definitely stop. And, and I would probably ask that question as soon as the words were out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think she overcommitted here. But in this case, it was the Lord's prodding. OK. Yeah. Great. OK. Um, well, let's pick it up and read verses 28, uh, 29, excuse me, through uh, verse 49. And as we read this, you're going to be hearing all the things you've heard before. OK, I want you to notice as if you could avoid noticing this is complete repetition. You know, all of this. OK, well, we'll read it and I'll talk about that repetition here in a moment. But but as we read it, keep in mind, what do these characters know? And what are they discovering at each step along the way as the story unfolds? Okay. now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his, uh, excuse me, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist 
And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for your camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban, and actually it's really not, really not clear from the Hebrew whether it was Laban or his servants or, or even the servant himself who unloaded the camels. But he says, Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now, Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. And he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked, before whom I've walked, will send his angel with you. Make your journey successful and you will take a wife for my son from the relatives and from excuse me, from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring. And may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink. And I will water your camels also. So I drank and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, uh, whom Milcah has born to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the, bra and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham who had guided me in the right way to the daughter of my master's kinsman's kinsman for his son. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Okay. Well, as I said, obviously a lot of this here is repetition of things that he just told us in the First part of the chapter, you know, even the part about Abraham being blessed. Uh, uh, all of, much of this uh, is just repetition, okay, and a great deal of repetition. We might ask ourselves, why does he do this? Why does the narrator bother to tell us everything that happened 
and then tell us about the servant telling us about everything that happened. Okay. Well, one thing is this is a this is actually uh, not an unusual literary technique in ancient literature, particularly in epic type literature, for them to do a lot of repetition like this. But that being said, that doesn't uh, doesn't change the fact that there's a purpose in it. There's a reason for it. Clearly, the Holy Spirit has some reason for repeating this story in such detail. Now, there are a few changes, a few things that he adds or, or leaves out or whatever from the first story. So it gives us a little different perspective of what actually happened. But but in general, in, in large measure, it's pretty much just a repetition of everything that we've already read and everything that we've already known. And we might ask ourselves, why does he do that? What is his point? Okay. Well, I think there's a couple things that that the Lord is after here in, in, in having the narrator repeat this story for us again and stress it so much. And one is, I think he wants us to understand the significance of what's happening. Okay? He wants us to understand that this whole thing with the servant coming to the well and his prayer and the coming of Rebecca and her response, that all of that is really important. It's really significant. And so we're going to go over it all again to make sure you've got it. Okay, we don't want you to miss this. Okay, and it's important uh, on several levels, of course, but primarily it's important because what God is doing here is He is finding for Abraham's son that woman who will join with Abraham's son in the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham, which in itself is part of God's greater promise that He made in the garden which he incidentally made, I was going to say that he made to Adam and Eve, but actually he made it to the serpent. And that is the promise that there would be a seed whom God would send, who would, whose uh, heel the serpent would bruise, but who would crush the serpent's head. And that's what's at stake here. And that's why it's so important that we understand that Isaac's, uh, Isaac's uh, securing of a wife Rebecca is not just mere happenstance. It's not just chance. But God is providentially, sovereignly directing in circumstances. Okay, that's that's clearly, I think, one thing that that the repetition communicates to us. But the other thing is, if as if we remember to do what I suggested last week and what we've talked about today about as we go through the passage, keeping in in our mind not what just what we know, but what they know at each stage along the way. Okay. If we do that, if we keep at each stage in the story, if we keep in mind, what does the servant know? What does Rebecca know at this point in the, at this point in the story? What does Laban know at this point in the story? You know, what does the family know at this point in the story? If we keep that in mind, then as we read this repetition, when we read the account of the servant telling the story, we can put ourselves in Laban's place. We can put ourselves in Rebecca's place and we can get some sense or some feel of how this whole story is impacting and affecting them. Because oftentimes when we read Scripture, and we, uh, particularly for many of us who have 
grown up uh, uh, in the church and we've heard these Bible stories over and over again, it's very easy just for us to read them by rote, isn't it? We just kind of, oh yeah, I know that story and we just kind of hurry on through it. And we get to repetitions like this and we go, oh, I wish I didn't have to read all this because I know all this. And we hurry on through it. And what God wants us to do oftentimes, I think, is to stop and actually put ourselves in the place of those people. You know, have you ever put yourself in the place of the disciples 24 hours after the crucifixion? Have you ever put yourself in the place of Mary when she arrives at the tomb? You know, it's one thing just to read the story and go, oh, these are the events. It's another thing to stop and say, how would that affect me? How would I respond in that circumstance? What would I think in that circumstance? And I think that's one of the things that God is trying to get us to do here. Particularly, not so much with Laban, although I think it is instructive with him, but particularly with Rebecca. How, how would we respond? How would that affect us? If we were in Rebecca's place. Now, I know for us guys, this may be a little bit more of a stretch than for the ladies. But nevertheless, I think it's helpful for us to do. So, so the story begins to unfold again. And, and, uh, and Rebecca runs off to tell her mom. Okay, that's, you know, that's the instinct. First thing you do is you go tell mom what happened. Okay? And so she runs off to tell mom. Uh, you know, and I, I, I get the picture. She left. She left the servant just lying there on the ground. You know, that's the last thing she saw of him. You know, she runs off to tell her mom. And of course, the servant then he just kind of gets up and no, I don't know where she went. You know, I don't know where these folks are. I don't know where this house is. So he's still standing there at the well. She's left there kind of high and dry because Rebecca's so excited. She hasn't bothered to say, well, wait here and I'll go get some. You know, she just takes off. Because she's got to tell her family about this fantastic experience she just had. Of course, she doesn't know half the significance of what has just occurred. She just knows she met this guy and he was really cool and he was really rich and she did all this work for him and then he just gave her these fantastic, extravagant gifts of this gold ring and these gold bracelets. Okay. So she runs off and, and, and then Laban hears the story. You know, he hears what Rebecca tells him. Now remember, he only knows now what Rebecca knows. That she encountered this guy at the well, that he was very wealthy, but he also knows some other things that she discovered there at the last moment, and that's what? What does she know? What does he know? Pardon? He came from Abraham, okay? Uh, there's an interesting point about that. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But he came from Abraham. What else does he know? Okay, okay. Uh, he addresses them as blessed of God, okay. And, and he uses the term there, Yahweh, does he not? He says, blessed of the Lord. He uses the name Yahweh. Where does he get that? Pardon? Okay, that's what the servant prayed. Now, we, we do know, of course, that Laban is an idol worshiper. We discover that uh, in several places. And it, uh, so, we know he's an idol worshiper. But we also know he's from that line of descent, right, that we've talked about, the line of promise. Okay, so there is the possibility that within the family of Bethuel, Nahor, Bethuel and Laban, that within their family, there is some residual knowledge of Jehovah, of Yahweh. Okay, so possibly he's heard the name. He's possibly known the name Yahweh. But he is a worshiper of many gods. We'll see he has many household idols. Okay? So he has a variety of gods. He's got a god for this and a god for that and a god for the other thing. You know, he's got a god for the washing machine, a god for the refrigerator, you know, a god for the lawnmower. He's got a god for everything. Okay? 
And, and so, and then there's Yahweh over here. Well, you know, we don't even have an idol for him. We don't even know what he looks like, you know. He just, so he's just kind of out there and he's kind of forgotten. But now he hears that the servant arrives and the servant is a worshiper of Yahweh as is Abram. Did you notice something there? Pardon? He called him Abraham. The servant called him Abraham. But they remember him as what? Abram, right? And all the way through the whole story, everybody talks about Abraham. Well, the servant talks about Abraham. I don't know if anybody else does. Okay. And so, immediately, you know, they apparently make the connection. They know that this guy Abraham he's talking about is, is, is old Uncle Abram, the crazy guy that ran off on a vision, you know. They know he's this guy that ran off 65 years ago. They know that. But when he ran off, his name was Exalted Father. But now he is called the father of a multitude. So these are the things that Laban knows. Now, why is he in such a hurry to get out there? Okay, he wants to extend hospitality to him. Okay. What? Okay. <laughs> okay. It seems like the narrator makes the point of that, doesn't it? Now, I don't want to make too much of a point of this, too much of a thing of this, but it does seem very clear because he says he ran out there to him and then he backs up and he says, oh, by the way, when he ran out there, he ran out there because he had seen the, the ring and the bracelets and heard what Rebecca said. So it was a combination of what he heard, but also of the gold. And we will see as, this, as we discover more things about Laban as the story of Genesis unfolds, we will see that he is a guy who really is pretty infatuated with, uh, with material wealth and he will bend the rules if he needs to in order to secure it. Okay, So we will discover this about Laban and I think this is maybe a little bit foreshadowing for us of the kind of things we're going to encounter with Laban later in the story of Jacob. But, but at any rate, apparently he's quite interested in this guy's goal. But why else would he run out there in such a hurry? Okay, yeah, he, he's, he's afraid he's going to miss his chance, okay. What if one of your kids came walking in the door, for those of you who have kids around the house still, what if one of your kids came walking in the door and said, you know, there's a guy out there that knows my uncle so-and-so we haven't heard from in 50 years. What would you do? You know, you'd run out there in a hurry, wouldn't you? I mean, this guy's coming bringing news of Abraham, you know. They haven't heard of Abraham in 65 years, okay? And so here's this guy out here, and he's a servant. I'd run out there. This is pretty exciting. Long-lost relative. You're going to hear the news, you know. And uh, so he runs out there. And he, and he extends his hospitality. And so we see this, this exuberant hospitality. And I don't think at all that can be attributed to, to Laban's greed. I think he just clearly was a very hospitable man. I think he extended just this, uh, he, he was generous. This was a, a representative of a family member. And, uh, and he was excited that he was there. And, and it's kind of nice to know he's got a lot of money too, you know, and this could be advantageous to us. And, and so he just runs out there and he brings him in and he unloads the camel and he takes care of him and he, 
and he, and he provides water for him to wash his feet. And then he brings the food and he sets the food before him. And at that point, the servant says, what? Okay. He says, before we eat, I have something I need to tell you. I need to tell you why I'm here. Okay. And now it becomes clear, if it wasn't clear before, that he isn't just passing through, but he has come for a purpose. And now it has come time for him to state his purpose. And when we think about, uh, as we have throughout this story, as we periodically stop to think about the analogy between this story and, 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 and the, the opportunity we have and the responsibility we have as individuals and as the body of Christ to communicate the gospel to a lost world, we see in this example of the servant, we see the priority that he places upon the job that he has. And he places the priority of the job that he has to do for the father, for his master. He places that above his own personal needs and his own personal desires. So before I eat, I got to take care of business. Okay. Well, Laban's quite uh, willing to go along with that because he's anxious to hear what all this is about. Okay. Now, the question is, who is here? when the servant tells this story. Well, that's my question. I've been wondering what the deal is the story. Okay. Okay. Well, it is clear that Bethuel is there because when it comes down to a decision being made, which is obviously at this same time, it mentions Bethuel. Now, Bethuel, you'll remember, is Laban and, and Rebecca's father. But Laban is carrying all the responsibility here. Okay. Now, we actually see this in several places in Scripture where, where the brothers take a lot of responsibility for their sister's uh, marriage arrangements. Okay, And we see that in several places. We won't go into all that right now. But it does seem that at this point, somehow in the story, Bethuel is kind of secondary. And, and probably several, several commentators just speculate at this point that he's probably incapacitated in some way. It may be that he's, he's quite aged, he's quite old, uh, and so he's just not able to do the kind of things that Laban does and take the responsibility. Maybe by this time he's given a lot of the responsibility uh, and a lot of the wealth and, and, and that sort of thing to Laban to, to manage and to take care of. And so clearly Laban is in the primary role here. But Bethuel does have some input, as we see later in the decision-making process. So, so, but clearly Laban's there, Bethuel's there. Do you think anybody else is there? Okay, so all the other guys are there, the, the servants, whoever they were and how many there were who came with the servant. Okay, so, but think about it. Here's this man who comes with this news from a far country, from a distant relative who left 65 years ago and they've heard little or nothing about him since. And now he shows up and he's going to tell the story. Who do you think was there? The whole family was there. Okay. Now, oftentimes, of course, in the culture, the men ate separately from the women. And, you know, we see that at various times in Scripture. And you see that in the culture that the men ate separately from the women. So you might think that it's just the men there. But remember the story back in chapter 18 when the three uh, angels, actually the Lord and two angels, came to, uh, came to Abraham and they sat down to eat under the tree with Abraham. Where was Sarah? In the tent, listening. <laughs> okay, so I think we can assume here quite safely, given everybody's interest in this guy, that they're all there. 
And if they're not right in the room, so to speak, they're all eavesdropping because they're all anxious to hear. Who is perhaps the most anxious of all? Rebecca. Why? She's the one who went out there and got the guy. She found him. She has a vested interest in this guy. And she's wearing these bracelets and this nose ring that he gave her. You know? So she, she wants to hear this story. So there she is in the background and she's listening as this guy begins to tell his story. And the first thing he does is the first thing that probably we ought to do when we're sharing the good news with people is he talks about the father and the son, right? He talks about Abraham and he describes this extravagant blessing that God has heaped upon his master Abraham. Gold and silver and servants and maids and donkeys and camels and flocks and herds. And he just paints this elaborate picture. And of course, he's got all the, you know, accoutrements there with him. You know, he's got all the camels and he's got the gold and he's got all the stuff with him, you know, and he's just showing. He's showing God off. (laughs) That's what he's doing. He's showing off God. Okay. Or he's showing off his master. Okay. And, 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 And he tells him about how great his master is and how God has blessed his master. And then he gets to the really cool part of the story. Which is that the master, the master's wife, Sarah, bore him a son in her old age. And my master has given to him all that he has. Well, okay, now put yourself in the place of Laban and Bethuel, but particularly Rebecca. Okay, what are they learning? What are they discovering? This guy is rich and he has had a son born to him under miraculous circumstances. And to that son, he has given everything he has. There are no other sons. There there are no other claimants to the wealth of Abraham. Only the son. What does that remind you of? The only begotten Son of God to whom Jesus said, My Father has given to me all that He has. Of whom Scripture says that to Him has been given a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The one who said of Himself, To me, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. And so we see Isaac is, in in a sense, a type of Christ here, isn't he? He is the one who has received from his father everything the father has. And that's the son that we represent. That is the bridegroom to whom we seek to bring the bride. The one to whom the heavenly father has given all that he has. So Rebecca is standing there in the shadows and she's hearing this story. And she's going, ooh, this guy's got a son. One son. And he gets everything. He gets everything. And so he's described now the son and he's described the the father. And he moves on in his story now to talk about his commission, his job, the servant's job. Okay, and he describes how Abraham called him aside and made him swear to this, swear this oath that he would not take a wife from among the Canaanites. 
but that he would go to his family and to his family's house, to his relatives, and take a wife for him there. It's the first time Rebecca's heard this. What is she thinking? <laughs> it could be me. I'm available. I'm a virgin. I need a husband. Actually, I think it's really beyond it could be. Well, she... I know. My wife's one of them. The potential possibility when I first talked to her, she was already writing Linda McIntyre. Well, she... She may be way beyond She may be. And it isn't going to take long for her to get there. Exactly. The way this story unfolds. That's true. That's true. What was it like the first time you knew that you could be a child of God? What was it like the first time you knew it was even possible that God could love you? This is where Rebecca is. Well, he's just moving on in his story, right? So then he says, I get there to the well. And the first thing I did is I prayed this prayer. Now remember, just, just while I'm telling this story now, you just stand in the, you just be Rebecca back here in the corner. And I'm the servant, okay? And I, and I prayed this prayer and I, I just prayed it in my heart, he says. This is the first time he says that. So now we know it wasn't spoken out loud, so nobody else knew what he prayed. Nobody, none of his servants, none of the other guys with him, nobody else knew. So there's no way for anybody to know but God. He said, in my heart, I said, Lord, I'm standing here at the well, as if God didn't know that. And he said, when, the woman comes, when, when, when a woman comes out with her jar on her shoulder and stuff, and, and she draws water, and I, I'm going to ask her for a drink. And Lord, if she offers me a drink... And offers to water my camels also. Pause. What are you thinking? You're Rebecca. What are you thinking? That's me. And he hadn't even gotten to the part about telling what she did. He's just telling what he prayed. And he says, Have her say, I'll give you a drink. And I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you have appointed to be the wife of my master's son. Now what is Rebecca thinking? Hmm? I'm chosen. I'm appointed. Who is she chosen by? She's chosen by God. And here is a woman who just an hour or two later was just living her life and going about life in a household of idols and had no real knowledge of Yahweh. Now discovers, before the guy ever finishes his story, discovers that he, in the secret of his own heart, spoke to Yahweh and Yahweh acted in her and so directed her circumstances, and so directed her response. Because long before 
long before this event ever happened, God had appointed her to be the wife of Isaac. And, you know, I can't imagine what's going on in Rebecca's heart at this point. Because now it's no longer just about getting married, is it? Now it's about a relationship with Yahweh. The unseen God. The covenant God. This is not like any God she's ever heard of before. And this God has chosen her. And this God is acting in her life. And this God is intimately and personally involved, not only in the circumstances of her life, but even inside her mind and the things she's thinking and the things she's doing. And she's discovering the reality of what it means to, as Abraham said, walk before the Lord. Well, then he goes on and, he, and, and in his telling his story, he goes on and he, and, and he explains how Rebecca came. But of course, Rebecca already knows all this, right? Because <laughs> she did that. Yeah, and she, yeah that was, that's what I did. You know? But now it's time for Laban and Bethuel to get a dose of reality. And they're going, uh, my sister did that? <laughs> She's never offered to water my camels. <laughs> my sister did that? And we will see next week, when we get to next week's story, we will see that, that they are so struck by the miraculous nature of Rebecca's response that it was clearly God's hand in it that they are speechless. They said they can say, they can see, say neither yes or no to what God has ordained. What God has established. They're just saying, listen, we're, we're not tampering with this. This thing is so clearly of God, we don't want to touch it with a ten-foot pole. And we'll get into that next week, okay? So everybody there now is going, wow. This thing is of God. Now let me just take a few minutes just to tell you a little story. Because all of us probably have, I hope we all do, in our lives, times when we go, God blew me out of the water. God was working and God was moving. And we had a thing like that happen in our family. And uh, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to cry about it. <laughs> but um, uh, our daughter-in-law, uh, Amanda, uh, some of you probably may have heard the story if you were at the reception they had shortly after they were married. Uh, came down, we had a reception here for him in Norman. And she told this story, but I've heard the story before. I heard it first from my son before I'd ever met Amanda, and he told me about this. And I went, ooh, that's pretty heavy. So when, <clears throat> when I got a chance shortly before they were married to sit down, my wife and I with them at, at, uh, uh, at a restaurant here in Norman just to, you know, uh, son, future daughter-in-law, father, mother, you know, interaction, you know, get to know each other better type thing. And, and, I, and I asked the man, I said, man, Benjamin told me this story about the things you prayed for a husband. And uh, I, I, I need to hear this from you. 
<laughs> and so she told me the story and she confirmed it. But she'd had she'd had uh, an experience with a guy before that hadn't been real pleasant. And, and, and I don't think the guy was real honoring to the Lord and how he uh, how he uh, uh, tried to court her and that sort of thing. And it really was a kind of a burnout experience for her in this whole process of getting married. And so she she prayed to the Lord and she said, OK, God, when I get married, uh, this is the man I want. And she gave the Lord six things. Uh, first thing was she wanted a man who loved the Lord more than he loved her. Well, that's a good thing to pray and, you know, a spiritual thing to pray. And I would hope that any guy married loves God more than he loves his wife. And that's one thing she wanted. And she had lived and spent a couple of years in the Caucasus areas of Russia. And so she prayed. She said, I like a guy who's lived in the Caucasus. Okay, that narrows it down. You know, how many Americans have lived in the Caucasus? I assume she wanted an American. I don't know. Uh, and by the way, Lord, would he have... I want him to be fluent in Russian. Okay, we're narrowing it down, folks. Then she said, uh, and I want him, you know, since he's probably been a missionary in Russia, I want him to have actually used his professional skills on the mission field. So he's not just over there witnessing or whatever, but he's actually used his professional skills. Uh, I want him to be younger than me. There was a reason why she had that in there. And we need to have a mutual acquaintance. That's what I want in a husband. Now, God could have just laughed her off, of course. Well... <clears throat> She was uh, assigned, uh, she was working for the International Mission Board at the time out of Virginia, and she was assigned to go to a missions conference in Turkey. And uh, my son was there. They're both single. And neither one of them were slightly interested in looking for me. In fact, when, when Amanda told me this story in the restaurant, after she went through her list of six things, I said to her, so really what you were telling God is you didn't want to get married, right? And she said, yeah, pretty much. I mean, think about that, folks. That's an impossible list. There's nobody like that. Right? And so she goes to this conference and some of her friends say, Hey, Amanda, there's this guy, Ben. Okay, remember, she prayed this to God alone in the secrecy of her heart. Nobody knew these things she prayed. Nobody, had, had, nobody knew this list. And they said, There's this guy who's going to be at the conference. here at the conference, a guy named Ben Harvey. And he's... You know, he's uh, he's working with the IMB in the Caucasus in Dagestan. You know, speaks fluent Russian. You know, and her mind's starting to go, mm, what? You know, you need to meet him. Well, she's not really all that interested in me, but it turns out they end up at a singles party at this missions conference. I don't know why missions conferences have singles party. And and my son was committed. Said, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with looking like I'm looking for a woman, you know, at a singles party. You know, this looks like a setup to me. You know? And and she, he didn't know anything about her. They end up in a, in a limbo game. You know what limbo is? You know, this thing. They end up in a limbo game and she's in line behind him. And she goes, she's heard about him. And she goes, so a lot of people say they can speak fluent, whatever, and they can't, you know. So she starts speaking to his back, starts talking to him in Russian. And he just turns around and starts talking to her. A lot of Christians, by the way, need a limbo game. Yeah. <laughs> 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 to make a long story... An exciting story, quite short. They ended up spending about the first 15 minutes of real conversation speaking to one another in Russian. 
And she discovered that he was, in fact, living in the Caucasus, fluent in the language, using his professional skills, architecture, in Russia. But thankfully, we didn't have a mutual acquaintance. Okay. But she's still pretty interested, so they start corresponding. She gets back to the States, and she goes to visit a friend of hers with whom she had roomed in college. Is, was it Katie? Is that who it was? Katie? Uh, Naomi. Naomi. Okay. So she goes to visit her... Uh, if she hears this tape, she'll probably correct half the story. But she goes, to, she goes to visit her friend, and they get snowed in. So she can't get back home. And so they're just got extra time to kill. And, and so her friend says to her... Uh, the reason I didn't know whether it was Katie or Naomi is because she roomed with both these girls. She and their sisters. She says... Uh, so her friend says, so you got any guys that you're, you know, looking at or whatever? And she says, well, you know, not really, but I've got this guy I met over in Turkey and we're emailing together. And she says, oh, really? She says, what's his name? She said, uh, Ben Harvey. And Naomi says, Ben Harvey? From Oklahoma? And uh, she goes, uh, Yeah. Naomi says, I think I know him. The man says, you don't know him. <laughs> Please don't know him. She says, have you got a picture of him? I haven't seen him since he was young, but have you got a picture of him? Yeah. So she pulls out her laptop and pulls up a picture of him. And she goes, I think that's him. The man says, that's not him. <laughs> Why? Because it was qualification number six. Well, it turns out, this family we've gone to camp with up in Missouri for umpteen years. And, you know, we know their whole family. Amanda knows their family well. We know the family well. We're close friends with them. Amanda's close friends with them. Now, I ask you. I was thinking about this this morning. Where was the providential sovereign direction of God? Was the providential sovereign direction of God in causing Amanda to come up with a list of six things? or over a period of lifetime shaping my son to meet the qualifications of the list that a man was going to come up with. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. When I heard that story, there was no doubt in my mind. But as I said last week, we don't, with signs, we don't just take the sign, right? And so they took a year, a year and a half after that before they really settled and decided, okay, this is it. And God wants us to marry, okay? So they didn't just take the sign. Actually, she didn't even give it as a sign. She just said, Lord, this is what I need. And, and the Lord said, well, I can do that. I can do that. Now, if you can imagine, you know, in a very contemporary context, what's going on in Amanda's heart as these pieces of the puzzle are falling into place. That's what was going on in Rebecca's heart. As the pieces of the puzzle were falling into place. And now she knows... Something she could have never imagined when she got up that morning. She is called to be the second Abraham. She is called to leave her country and her family and her father's house and go to a strange land she does not know and to a strange people to worship and serve a God she's never heard of before. And to partake in and be a participant in 
God's covenant promise to that family? How will she respond? Well, that's what we'll look at next week.